Podcast with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Inc., a strategic consulting, as well as marketing agency for addiction treatment and behavioral health. Today, we are speaking with Zena Rodriguez. She has her own consulting firm, Z&D Consulting, and then she also was recently appointed to the board of NATAP. She specializes in diversity, equity, and inclusion. So before we speak with her, I want to hear from our sponsors, the Global Exchange. The Global Exchange Conference 2022 is a four-day event of continuing educational presentations, workshops, and experiences from November 1st through the 4th. Located at Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando, Florida, this event, for the first time ever, brings together professionals and organizations from the mental health, addiction, and wellness fields. With over 100 continuing education hours presented by over 60 professionals, this promises to be a tremendous learning and networking experience. GXC 2022's featured speakers include Deepak Chopra, Whoopi Goldberg, Gabor Mate, and Rob Lowe. For more information, go to globalexchangeconference.com. All right, so diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, DEI, is, is an up-and-coming topic and a very important topic, obviously, for the field of behavioral health. Within the hospital space, uh, we've seen this become really I don't know if I'd say integrated per se, but it's become a very important point of focus for a lot of hospital executives over the past, you know, five, six years or so. In behavioral health is, is much newer. I'd say, you know, over maybe the past year, we've started to see some movement in this direction. So I thought this was a really important topic to talk about. And a lot of listeners probably don't know, but I actually am a certified diversity executive and diversity executive trainer. So for about two years, um, way before I started Circle Social, I went into Fortune 500 companies. I went into the military, um, universities across the country and did DEI trainings on teaching people how to become a certified diversity executive, a certified diversity consultant, or just helping them and their organizations implement systems and processes and move forward with a variety of DEI initiatives. So, so this is my world um, where it was my world for, for a number of years. And so I'm really, really excited to be talking about it on the show. It's something I've also really made integral to Circle Social as I've built it. We bring in a lot of team members from a variety of backgrounds. Our first hire was a deaf woman. Um, we have people from obviously a lot of different ethnicities. I've hired, uh, we had a leader that was from Pakistan or was born in Pakistan. He'd lived in the U.S. for quite a while. Before we hired him, you know, we have autistic individuals in the company. We have people that come from different sexual orientation or religious backgrounds. And something that we'll, we'll touch on a little bit in the conversation, but the core point that you really want to get out of this conversation is that DEI is critical actually to the success of your organization when done well. A, a lot of DEI initiatives tend to start off as feel-good initiatives. They can be a little bit fluffy, and for that reason, they get lost. But the reason that I hire people from a variety of backgrounds is because I'm intentional. I, I want someone with a certain level of lived experience that's going to inform either the way that we lead the team or the way that we communicate with certain demographics for clients. That's very important. Or they have a particular skill set that I think is valuable to us. But the thing that I'm always doing is I'm never hiring someone because of a demographic. I'm hiring the best person for the job. I'm looking at experience. I'm looking at skills. Is this the best person? And then also, do they have the experience related to what we need to fulfill the role? Or do they also have maybe different experience? Because what you find within DEI is that as you bring in people from different backgrounds, you have more friction in the organization, right? Because people see things in a different way. They have a different understanding or a different worldview. Um, and again, different lived experiences. And so that lived experience is what you want, but you'll find that it actually takes you a little bit longer to make decisions. But Harvard's done some really good studies around this and the Harvard studies have found that when you have more friction, you actually slow the decision-making process down. You think through potential outcomes and potential obstacles much better. And so even though it seems like there's more friction and it's a little bit slower, you actually get a better result. So that's one really huge advantage of bringing people in from different backgrounds. 
The only caveat I would add there is the number one thing you're always doing from a hiring standpoint is hiring for aligned mission and values. You don't want to bring in people to your organization that have a different value set or have a different mission in place. Um, so as long as they're aligned and mission and values, then you're looking at that diversity of experience aspect of it and saying, hey, can this person bring something to the team that we don't currently have? And I do the same thing with promotion decisions. When I promote someone into a leadership role, I do about 50% of hiring from within the organization and 15% without very intentionally so that I'm getting people that have organizational experience and all the value that comes with that, as well as people that have an outside lens that are going to help us to not continue to doing doing things one way just because that's the way that we've always done them. Um, so that helps my ROI as an organization. I can very confidently say that we've grown in large part because of the wide breadth of experience and backgrounds that I have on the team here at Circle Social. Uh, so Xena is going to help us really understand this from a much deeper level. We'll start off with a 30,000 foot view and then start digging into some of the nitty gritty of different initiatives that DEI can bring to the table or how to start a DEI initiative and what's important to be thinking about as you're trying to understand not just some kind of surface level actions to take, but how do we integrate into the core of the organization so that it is central to our mission and helping us achieve that mission and achieve the ROI that we're looking for within the organization. So with that, let's jump in. Hey, Zena, really appreciate you coming on and, and taking a minute to talk to us about diversity, equity, and inclusion today. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization? Sure. Thank you so much, Nick, for having me. Um, and thank you for letting me talk about this um, very timely topic. I'm, you know, Zena Rodriguez. I am a social worker. I'm also a certified addiction professional um, and a certified diversity executive been working in the field now probably for about 14 years. Um, it was a second career for me. And I most recently launched um, Z&D Consulting really to provide services for where I know that there's a gap in our field in how do we provide equitable and responsive, culturally responsive care for folks, um, you know, in diversity and looking at diversity from um, different lived experiences so that we could provide optimum care. So this is a pretty um, important topic and something a lot of people are talking about both in the hospital world that I operate in, as well as the behavioral health and the SUD space. So just kind of focusing on SUD, you know, let's talk about DEI and just an overview, like from 30,000 feet, what is the broad role from your perspective of DEI in behavioral health and SUD? Yeah, I think for our field in particular, I think we're usually kind of slow to respond to you know, what other corporations and industries are already putting into practice um, in terms of innovative business modalities. And I think for us, it's really not a if but when proposition. You know, we are in a multicultural world. There's much more focus on the needs of different diverse and marginalized communities. And from that 30-foot lens, I really believe organizations have to take a strong leadership role in implementing true organizational transformational change on DEI. And then you know, this is something that we've talked about quite a bit, you know, especially based on our certifications. You, there is a, a tendency for DEI to be you know, just kind of having a feel-good fluffy element, or often it's the right thing to do is the reason given for a lot of actions. But I always comment on, well, the right thing to do, I mean, you know, if I, selling my house and giving all my money away could be the right thing to do. You know, spending my time devoting it all to uh, spending all my time in a homeless shelter, you know, could be the right thing to do, but that doesn't necessarily provide long-term sustainability. It doesn't necessarily provide balance, right? And so when we look at DEI, how do we kind of think about these actions? How do we think about focus and mission output and outcomes and really getting some kind of return and, and a focus sense within our organizations? Yeah, definitely understand what you're um, presenting there. I think the way we're approaching this now and what's new for our field is from a real social responsibility place, which is absolutely appropriate. After the murder of George Floyd, I think there was a real kind of racial reckoning on, you know, where we were as a field and who were we serving and why aren't we serving and, and so many other issues that complex, you know, issues that affect our staff members. So I think we started to take a, a look at it. 
However, I really like fundamentally, philosophically believe DEI can't just be a piece of the fluffy feel-good stuff. It really has to be integrated for it to be effective in an overall organizational strategy. So just like with any any new implementation you're going to do within an organization is how are you going to measure this? How are we going to hold um, accountability to it? So it's creating, it's first of all, collecting data. Are we collecting the appropriate data that we can iterate and make decisions on? How do we uh, create and what KPIs need to be created? But if I take a step, just one step back from that like real RRI business function, I think we have to address the social, political, cultural stuff. And for organizations to effectively do this, you have to have a leadership that is very clear on what their goals and objectives are. So let's start. There's, uh, there's a lot there that I think is really good. Um, starting off with the leadership, you know, sometimes there's a question of, is it top down? Is it bottom up? Um, so can you speak to that first? Sure. Oh, my gosh. I'm such a proponent of the top down I think what happened with the response and a lot of the statements that we saw from some organizations in our field was, you know, a, a real like social responsibility reaction. Like we saw that this was problematic and we needed to respond. I think internally what I have in conversations I've been having with organizations, there was kind of more of a bottom approach um, usually from clinicians and staff members within organizations that kind of said we need to do something. So DEI committees started to be formed and some organizations had, you know, put some practices in place. Some are far advanced and leadership is involved, but I don't think that's kind of a general practice. And so I'm a real proponent of it takes the leadership to really have an investment and a buy-in into what DEI needs to be for the organization so that it could be effectively rolled out and integrated throughout the organization. Yeah, I agree. You absolutely need it coming from top down. Obviously, it's coming bottom up as well. It's beneficial. I think the challenge, and this kind of leads into that whole discussion of output versus outcomes, is, you know, sometimes, sometimes like we have some leaders in this field already, you know, like Ashley Addiction Treatment has been doing some really strong initiatives and they're building DEI statements and NATAP has been pushing a lot around DEI. So we're seeing a lot of good movement in the space. But that first step is often, you know, crafting like a, a DEI statement, right? You know, here's their philosophy and organization. And then people kind of get stuck. They're not quite sure where to go next. On the flip side, maybe you have leaders that say, okay, this seems important. It looks like it's important to the team. So as you said, they set up a committee. Maybe they delegate someone to kind of oversee it. Maybe they hire a diversity coordinator. But then because there's not, you know, a really clear ROI for the leadership team, it doesn't become a priority. And if it's not a priority, then leadership's not going to have an intense focus on it. So like when I used to go and do consulting and training, you know, you'd see all these output outcomes that we've got X amount of ERGs, we've got X amount of headcount for women or people of color, or we've had X number of multicultural parties. Well, those aren't critical to the survival and the health of the organization. So what does the leadership team need to look at in terms of the outcomes and the KPIs that you're talking about that is going to make it one of like the top three components of, of the overall business growth strategy? Yeah, I think, I think, first of all, with this particular initiative, this is a, such an interpersonal topic, and there's a spectrum on where people believe there's a need for it and not. Um, so that has to be addressed first. That interpersonal piece is not just ROI, and, and it's once you get clear on the interpersonal piece as leadership, then you can really identify what are the effective ROIs. Because if you think about, let's just take diversity hiring as that's your output performance and what you want to measure. Well, what do you have in place to, to create belonging and making sure that you have retention and professional development avenues? So it goes more beyond just having, you know, let's say, you know, that KPI that says we're going to increase, you know, our marginalized representation by 20% next year. Okay, so you've done that. What happens when those employees show up and they're part of your organization? How do you create an organization that really has a cultural, diverse, and, you know, I don't want to, you know, we're talking about disabilities here, we're talking about neurodivergence, all of the things that fall under the umbrella of diversity. How are we going to meet the needs of that organization, of, of those employees as they come into our organization? And the same thing with clients. 
Okay, and then once that's set up, what kind of objectives or what KPIs do you think the, the executive team or the organization as a whole should be looking at to kind of measure the success of, of those efforts? I think that's going to be very individualized per organization. I think it's going to depend upon their demographic regional area, um, the clients that they serve, that they look to serve. It's going to depend on payers, you know, nonprofit you know, may have some grantees that may require specific um, needs. And this is where there's no cookie cutter approach. And I, when I'm talking to organizations who want like very concrete ROI specific to just one objective, they've got to get clear on how they're going to meet the needs for that objective. So it's really kind of drilling it down a little bit further than just having this laundry list of objectives if that makes sense. Yeah, I 100% agree with the no cookie cutter, right? I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make with DEI in particular, where they say, well, we want diversity for diversity's sake. So, you know, the the example I always give is, let's say that we're an insurance agency, or you could be an addiction treatment provider in a, in a city that has a heavy Hispanic population. While in that city, it doesn't make sense for us to hire Chinese speakers to increase our you know, diversity of people from an Asian background in that community, because that's not going to help us reach the community that we're serving. It would make a ton of sense to make very intentional efforts to recruit and retrain um, Spanish speakers, right? Because exactly. they're going to understand the culture. And so, so I think that is what's really critical for people is we're not just doing diversity for diversity's sake. Understand what our goals are. Um, understand what we're trying to accomplish and then make intentional choices about how we're trying to diversify the team. And I, a really good example, you know, that we often use as the trainings was American Express, right? American Express was growing as a company, but all they did was send their advertisements to men and the entire executive team was men, et cetera. Well, you know, women had entered the workforce a couple decades ago and no one was reaching them. And it wasn't until they had women come up into the executive ranks that they started you know, realizing and understanding how to message and market to women. And then suddenly they had a massive increase in, in sales. And so you know, that would be a great example of, of smart intentionality saying, hey, let's make sure that we're bringing in people from different backgrounds, different demographics that make sense for us to grow the organization successfully. And I think SUD needs to think in that same way. Are, are there any providers that you've started to work with or have you seen anyone kind of start to take some of those steps yet? I have. I think, you know, we're, again, I I keep referencing how we're really young um, with DEI in this field. And, you know, that's okay. I mean, and organizations are starting to do it. I think after 2020, that became a real initiative for many of them. And totally those two examples you gave were perfect and right on point because it's understanding your consumer base. It's also then understanding where the gaps and needs are of your leadership. Because if you don't have lived experiences at the table, you just don't know. And that's not a shaming statement or like we're not doing good enough. And But it's it's really recognizing sometimes you need a lens, different lenses to create innovation. Um, and, and that's, you know, those two examples you gave were, were perfect with that. Yeah, 100%. I mean, as I build Circle Social, I'm very intentional about the, the DEI that we build into the company. And the reason for that is because there, there is benefits from those different lenses, right? But we're intentional about those perspectives that we bring in. So when I'm looking to hire for a role or maybe create a new leadership role, I take 50% of the team from within the company and 50% of the team from outside the company because there's a huge advantage to the people that understand how we work, what we do. But there's also a huge advantage of bringing someone else in that is going to give us another lens and not do things the way we've always done them. And so it's the same thing when we're building leadership teams within a behavioral health facility. You know, how do we bring people in that have lived experience? And then how do we have people that also have an outside experience? And that can just be like recovery, right? You don't want everyone in right. recovery in your organization. You also don't want nobody in recovery in your organization, right? You want to have these, these dynamics that allow you to look at things in a, in a multitude of perspectives, because that's going to allow you to make the most effective decisions moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, innovation happens when there's a variety of thought that happens and diverse thinking and ideas that are around the table. That's like, the, you know, the essence of a great organization and, and success. And, um, you know, McKinsey probably has you know, the best report out there, still a little outdated. I think they have to update it, but their last report on DEI from 2020, which surveyed a thousand uh, companies globally outside of our, our industry, of course, 
when they examine you know their leadership when they have the, the top quarter percent of companies that are excel is because they have an, a significant increase in diversity so um, over the years I forget how long they've been doing this survey but as as organizations become very intentional about diversifying their leadership so that they have that different thought and experience on their teams, they find that they outperform their peers on profitability, on profitability. So, you know, I don't, I think for our, our field in particular and SUD, I don't think it's a if, but when proposition at this point, I think even though we're in the beginning stages and there are some early leaders that are coming out, I think eventually, you know, everyone is going to have to do it at some point. Our payer providers are doing it on their ends you know, grantees are looking, you know, folks who are providing grants for organizations want to see it. So, you know, it's a matter of whether you want to play catch up or you want to get ahead of the curve on this. Yeah, I, I think it's so important what you mentioned there. And I'll actually link that McKinsey report because that's fantastic in the in the comments to the podcast. But it does get results, right? And that's the part that a lot of people don't realize. They tend to think about diversity, equity, and inclusion as the right thing to do. And obviously it is but it also improves the results of the organization. And there is a massive amount of data that has shown this time and time again. I mean, the McKinsey report's a really good one on that. And so when people understand that, that also helps you get buy-in across the company. Because, I mean, we all know that this topic can be contentious, right? And so if you're just coming in saying, hey, you know, we want to hire more women. We want to hire more people from a, a different ability background. How is that going to help our organization? Are you going to have people in the organization that say, okay, well, that person just got hired because they checked this box with a disability or they checked this box as a woman. That absolutely happens all the time. And one way mm-hmm. to cut that off is to, hey, look, here's our goals and here's what we know works. And building a, a diverse, inclusive team is one of the ways to accomplish our goals. And that's why we're being intentional about this, right? And then helping people understand that, you know, for example, bringing in Hispanic speakers because we have a huge Hispanic community that we're not reaching. And we know that when we reach them, one, they need the help. And then two, obviously, it's going to help our census by having more people that we're able to serve. So when people see the goals and how it aligns with the mission, then everyone's able to get behind that and support it because it makes a lot of sense versus to them maybe seeing it as, as an us versus them. Um, I mean, is that yeah. I'd really be interested in your, kind of your comments on, on that overall? Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree with it. And I think um, for us in particular, with the populations we serve, just overall, you know, folks that are seeking treatment and recovery, you know, individuals and families, they are, they're vulnerable on multiple levels. So, you know, just across the board, there's vulnerability in seeking treatment. And then when you look at marginalized communities, there are so many other factors that are contributing to why they may not seek treatment. And that speaks to bias within communities itself on accessing care and who they access care with and and trust factors. So I think the secondary component to this is the investment in really clinical, culturally responsive care. And this is where engaging with stakeholders is really critical. It may be looking at how delivery of clinical services doesn't meet the way we traditionally do it, um, participate in it, doesn't meet the needs of various communities. So, you know, this is an intensive effort and this is, we really have to, the intentionality has to be long-term. This isn't a short-term fix. This isn't a short-term solution. Um, And you're definitely going to get a a return on your ROI, but you also want to be able to do this work because at the end of the day, we're dealing with the most vulnerable, you know, populations during their most vulnerable times where we're not doing any further harm. Well, let's dig into that a bit because, I mean, both you, I think everyone, if they just kind of take a glance around their facilities, most people coming in are white. And that's that's just the norm in the U.S. I mean, I'm in facilities all the time and occasionally we'll see someone from an Asian American background or black or Hispanic, but the, the vast majority of people are white. So any thoughts? I mean, like, why do you think that is? You mentioned reaching out in a, in a culturally appropriate or community responsive way. Do you think that the way the treatment is currently set up is appropriate for different communities? Do you think it's just that we're not doing the outreach? Any any thoughts in terms of what you know what people can do to reach different demographics? Yeah, I mean, well, the number one, our particular like our more private for profit, um, and even kind of the 
privatized nonprofits, if we, we want to call them that, there, there's never been an intentional effort to reach other communities. And I've, you know, I've worked in multiple um, treatment centers as well. I have been really the rare uh, person of color um, at a leadership table in every organization I've worked for. I was a true rarity. And also in representation of clients, I've, I've never worked in a facility other than a state mandated facility where there were more representation of people of color or um, from other populations. It just didn't exist. And I just think that speaks to the fact that our marketing efforts, our outreach, who we hire, what you see on websites does not, is not inclusive of other populations. That's just, you know, bottom line fact. I think over the last year, you know, if we, we notice as we're looking at other treatments and their websites, now you're seeing more diversity in actual imagery of like who's represented when you opened up the first page of a website. That didn't exist before. If you opened up a website, you saw all white people. If you looked at the leadership team, they were all white. And really until recent, probably over the last decade is that we've seen more female leadership just in general. So that's one part. And the second part is the stigma that I mentioned earlier. And that's a very you know, big issue. We saw that play out um, during the pandemic as convincing some populations to trust the medical community with getting vaccinations was a real issue. And what it took was real effort from within communities and trusted provider providers. And if we just talk about the Black community, you needed Black doctors, you needed Black caseworkers, social workers to really convince people that this was okay. Like you were, that you could trust, you can trust us. And, you know, there's real historic um, significance to that. You know, we have not the greatest history um, with many populations. Experimentation has been real in marginalized communities. So that trust is a factor. So how do you develop that trust? You know, and I'm a true social worker. So I'm a person in environment. I'm a person of believing in the strengths of community, finding those strengths. I think we go in, you know, and we try not to leave a footprint in communities. We try to be partners within communities. And I think that's the approach, you know, when I'm talking to organizations is, you know, my, my, my main thing is, you know, who's in your community that you need to talk to who can inform? Who are the trusting elders, you know, the Black community, it's often spirit based on spirituality. It's those pastors that are starting to really address mental health from the pulpit, you know, those are the people you want to partner with. But representation also matters. That trusting relationship, you know, you need some representation on, on your business development and outreach teams that are embedded in communities. So I think that's exactly right. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, there there's an outreach component where you have to spend, dedicate, you know, time and money to understanding what the needs of that community are. So we're not having a one size fits all approach. Maybe there's something in the way that we perform treatment that's not necessarily connecting to a particular community. So get out there, talk to them, understand their needs, rather than us trying to ta- trying to make them conform to us, we're trying to tailor it to them. And then that second component is where the intentionality in recruitment comes in. Because as you're talking about, you know, if you're just sending a, a bunch of white people into different communities, there's going to be that disconnect. There's going to be that lack of lived experience. There's going to be a lack of um, cultural knowledge around communication styles. And so make sure you do the recruitment, then go out into the communities. And then from there, you know, see what the potential next steps are. Is that, is that about right? Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, there needs to be a trust factor for communities. So you, to have that trust factor is really representatives within, within the communities themselves that you could build trust with. So I think it's really important to, you know, be intentional about who you're sending to certain areas, intentional about the conversations that you're having when you're reaching out to stakeholders. What are their needs? I've seen a couple of organizations and I've just, you know, watched it, you know, as an observer and kind of say, put out statements that they've partnered with a community and are offering, you know, a scholarship per se, but is a scholarship enough? Is that what the community is really asking for? Is that the need? So folks get a scholarship into your treatment center, then what happens when they get there? Are they going to be welcomed, belonged? Are they going to receive the appropriate cultural responsive care that you look for? So again, it's about just building the relationship with the stakeholders, asking them what their needs are. What are they seeing in their communities? Can we be of assistance? What do we need to be informed of? 
And, you know, it's almost like asking your permission. There's so many strengths within communities. I think about the Native community, you know, community. And you think about um, at NATAP, we just honored an organization, White Bison, who has developed a very specific um, modality that actually is effective for all populations, but because it, it's based on the founding principles of Native culture um, and the 12 integrated with 12 steps, that it really works for their particular community. That only can happen if the people that are creating that are from that lived community and understand that. And so that's like a perfect example of how important it is to expand who you have at your table, creating programming, making decisions, and that they really understand the needs of the community or and or a part of that community. Well, I think it's such a great comment, I think, on two levels. So one, you mentioned the scholarship thing with, I mean, scholarships are amazing, right? But you're right. It's not necessarily, it's not the be all end all, it's not necessarily what the community might need. You know, I think I'll have people, because I lived in China for a while and I speak Mandarin. And so people will sometimes ask me like, hey, we want to go into China. It's this potentially huge market. You know, can we start building treatment programs there? My answer is no, don't waste your time because the Chinese are not going to go to a Western style treatment program. Like it's just not how the Chinese operate. They think about medicine, they think about health very differently. The family structure and support is much, much different. So a Western model of addiction treatment would, would make absolutely no sense in China. You know, you'd really have to understand. And I mean, you had that experience, right? You were, you were in Thailand, you know, I mean, did you have a lot of tires or did you have a lot of foreigners coming to that facility? Yeah, no, in that particular facility, we were really focused on medical tourism. So most of our clients, probably 99% came from abroad. And it was a broad spectrum of countries represented, largely from Australia and the UK, and then a broad diversity of clinicians. But one of the particular programs we had was focused on Middle East clients and, you know, really Middle Eastern clients from high net worth families that they were already kind of used to getting medical treatment abroad and, and, and receiving those type of services. However, when it came to delivery of care and designing that program, we had an entire team that was representative from that region. And again, there's, you know, and I haven't said this yet, but there's no monolith in, in a lot of cultural communities, right? So if you think about the Middle East, one size fits all is not going to be it. So we had representative clinicians from a variety of of countries in the MENA region that could inform care and appropriate care. And even from an operational standpoint, what needs that we have from um, an environment of care? You know, did we have to, what type of um, prayer program, prayer room did we have to set up? What should it look like? What did it need to have inside of it? You know, the gender separation issue was, a, you know, very significant for that population. How did you do that? How did we treat LBGTQ identified clients who often in the beginning would not um, discuss that, but create a safe environment where they could do it within the clinical setting that we provided. But none of that treatment could be delivered in a very appropriate cultural responsive way if we didn't have those clinicians who understood that culture intimately. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And yeah, I think it's such a critical piece of the DEI puzzle is people understanding that. Like DEI doesn't just mean kind of being open to all, it means being intentional about the way that you support people coming from different backgrounds. I, I deal with this a lot with the faith-based programs that we work with. Like we have a big psych hospital that we work with in Phoenix. And you know, when we first started working with them, they're like, well, we were faith-based, but we're open to everybody. And I said, how is that beneficial? I said, one, all of your counselors are, are Christian. They're coming from a Christian background. That's what you're good at. And have you ever served anyone from other religious backgrounds? How many Buddhists, how many Muslims, how many Jews have you had in the program? And their answer was like, like well, like one over the past 10 years. I said, yeah, so, so why don't you help the people in the way that you can serve them best? And you know that then goes to your marketing messaging is making sure that you're putting the right message out there so the right people find you that'll benefit from it. Just like Native Americans are gonna benefit from white bison, medicine wheel, well variety programming. People from different backgrounds or different faiths are also gonna benefit from that tailored programming. Just like in you know your program in Thailand where you had people set up from the Middle East with a real understanding of Islam and all the rules around it, that 
that's required, I think, for good treatment. And so, yes, we want to open our doors for people, but we also want to be intentional about who we serve and how we serve them best. And then creating tailored uh, experiences and programs, I think, is super important. Absolutely. And then like with that example of the Middle East programming, and this was something I learned when I was out there, there was a large amount of Coptic Christians from that community. So we would be blending, you know, the two spiritualities together in the same programming. So it was, how do you effectively do that? You know, and you can only do it well when people understand the nuances involved. And when, you know, we, we pretend to understand it and know it and think that we can be of service to all is when we make mistakes. And I know there's a huge cost factor, like, you know, if I'm, in, and I have been in an operational role where I was responsible for the budget, I'm, I'm thinking that's really expensive. Like I can't do that for all people then understand again back to the the, the demographic demographics you're serving and also have people that maybe you are just contracting with available to you have have that availability that when you get certain clients that is, is kind of out of the norm for your treatment center at least you have um some ability to have some you know cultural clinical cultural aspects included in that person's treatment process yeah, yeah. I mean, it goes back to that ROI conversation, right? Who are you and who do you serve? And one way to help people is from obviously contracting or, or trying to build out a program. But the other way is just to partner with other treatment providers that specialize in the areas that you don't, right? And that's why we can all work together. I think, I think that's important because it, it helps you serve the right people, you know, whether it's age or gender or faith backgrounds, different programming works for different people. And if your program doesn't specialize in it, then you are best serving that patient by recommending them to another program that, that does. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we often see that. And um, I know I went through this with a family member with the LBGTQ plus community. If you have someone that's really kind of struggling around that issue, you know, you want to put them in a facility that has some specialized clinical programming for that. Um, that I can address that. So, you know, that's, that's a very good point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, one of our other providers is a really old program focused on the, the gay male community up in uh, Minneapolis and they do a phenomenal job, you know, and really just referred someone there a couple of weeks ago and because they're, they're so good at what they do, you know, but then on the flip side, I think there's an old SAMHSA study. I think it was like from 2014 or something, but they surveyed all these programs that had LGBTQ programming on their websites and they highlighted it and they called them all. And they found that only like 17 of them actually had dedicated programming. Mostly they were just putting it on their website as, as jargon. And right. that is, you know, obviously the exactly wrong way to approach DEI <laughs> or patient acquisition Absolutely. in general. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I think we're going to see it more and more, unfortunately, because folks know how, you know, Google algorithms work and what's a good keyword to get rankings on. And I think we're going to see, you know, some of that, you know, unfortunately practices going on where people are going to say they do certain things, but they don't because they could get ranked for it. But this is where, you know, the education piece of working with clients and those are in outreach. You know, I started my career in this field in outreach and, you know, my, my responsibility to clients and folks that called our number and if I was convincing them um, that our treatment you know, facility was appropriate for them was really to learn about the client first and make sure that our treatment center was appropriate for them. So those outreach folks that we hire are really critical to the to this overall process. And to your point, you know, and then if we're not the appropriate provider, having the partnerships with folks that are. Yes, absolutely. So you actually just joined the the board of NATAP. Can you talk a little bit about that and what your objectives are now that you've come onto that board? Yeah, I did. Wow, what a major, like, full circle moment for me. NATAP was my very first conference, my third week on the job as an outreach person in a brand new field. And I, I really was in awe of having come from a corporate background, being in this, um, their first conference and seeing all these leaders and owners of treatment facilities that were driven by their passion and purpose from their own recovery. And I'm like, wow, what a unique world and unique business model. These are people that are really have aligned, you know, their personal passion 
with long-term recovery and how to provide it for more folks. So I was, you know, immediately enthralled with it. I just didn't experience that in corporate America. You know, and then over the years, as I developed my own teeth within the industry and worked in the field long enough, I started to recognize the gaps in our industry and the gaps in leadership, the gaps, as we talked about, in the diversity of leadership. So when NATAP formed their DEI committee, I became a part of that committee and, you know, over the past two years have worked very closely with a wonderful team there. Marvin has been a really innovative courageous leader that has really decided that DEI and the social responsibility piece was, you know, going to be a massive initiative for NATAP. So of course I had that greatly appealed to me and my participation on the committee, we've done some really great initiatives already. And the first one was we had a recognition that it was a very white board and it was, you know, primarily due to kind of the way the bylaws were written of the organization. So formally, you could not be a member of the board if you were not a owner of a treatment center. So that was kind of the first initiative that the DEI committee put forward. We said, look, you know, if you really want to embrace this, you have to get some diversity on the board. So what needs to happen? So a change in the bylaws was made that opened it up. And within the last two years, we've had um, two African-Americans on the board, um, Rick Hubbard and Phil Rutherford. So they were at it. And then I was just appointed in um, at this last conference um, in May. And it's just, for me, it just aligns completely now with my passion and purpose. So I, I am very excited about it. There's a lot of work that we need to do as a provider association. The second initiative that we really knew organizations needed was some type of assessment tool to just start the conversation with organizations. Like, how do you assess where you are with DEI? Many organizations don't even know what DEI means. So it was kind of just getting that information out there. So we looked at quite a few DEI tools that are already are available out there and crafted one that was specific to addiction treatment. And what we did was we took the stages of change model because we really wanted to have language and a journey that would resonate with addiction treatment providers. And the stages of change model was like perfect for it. So we developed this assessment tool that's available online to treatment providers to start gauging where they currently are. So they get to just anonymously take a look at it within their leadership team and, and, and take a, just a, a real good look at themselves and then think about what are the next steps for their organization. That's great. I, I mean, I'm excited. And I really appreciate your work there. And I think hopefully that'll start to solve this question. You know, this kind of chicken and egg question is why aren't people from different demographics seeking care? And I think it could very well be the fact that, you know, everyone that's working in the organization or the top of the organization is coming from a white background. And so we don't even know, right, if we have the experience that we need at the leadership level to reach people from different demographics and different backgrounds. And I think if we can start to diversify that leadership structure, we'll, I think we'll most likely start to see positive movement in reaching different communities. Definitely agreed. I mean, we have so much work to do and that is kind of just like a beginning, beginning phase of it. We also have plans to create a, um, a general climate survey for staff members so that they can anonymously assess where they feel their organization is on DEIB and provide that filter because leadership, you know, can often see it one way and staff see it another way. So it's kind of coalescing the two and figuring out now that we have this information and this data and we know this about ourselves. Now, now we can talk about what do we need to do, but you kind of take, you got to take that inventory first, right? Yeah, for sure. So we know that we kind of need to diversify leadership and different different levels of the organization. But then what is the role of straight white men in these initiatives? Oh, my gosh. It, it, Marvin Ventrell is the perfect example. You need courageous leaders to say, I have, I'm in a unique position of power and privilege to make change and impact change. And truly, truly, if Marvin had not been such a strong advocate for the DEI initiatives, 
that NATAP is currently doing, they would not happen. If he didn't say to me, Zena, you know, looking at your resume, looking at your background, why don't you apply for a board seat? You know, I wasn't thinking about it. I was sitting on the DEI committee. I, I honestly didn't even think of it. And he said, you are most, most useful as we need you and we need your lived experience. We need your experience as, you know, a woman of color who's been a leader in the field to inform how we keep moving forward. So it takes that kind of effort from white males who hold the majority of that privilege, especially in our industry. You know, we are still a, a very male white dominated field. And again, I say that just in full, that's just who we are. It's not to make folks feel guilty. It's just to recognize that and say, we need to do better. How can we do better so that we can have diverse voices so that we can impact more communities. We believe in recovery our field. NATAP was organized around primarily main founders, male owners who wanted people to have the same recovery that they had. So me as a woman of color, I want that for my community. I want that for so many of my own family members um, for so many reasons who have never accepted treatment. Or, or even thought about going into treatment. So what I'm hearing from you and what I always found important in the field is really helping under, people understand that straight white men are an integral part of DEI processes and initiatives. I think a mistake that's often made even by DEI consultants is DEI comes across as something for everybody except the straight white male. And so when they feel outside of the DEI initiatives, well, then, they, then they're not taking part. Then they're not taking that initiative to move a, a process forward, or they're just not going to give it their full attention because they feel like it's not for them or it's not a part of what they do. And I've even seen that in conversations with executives. You know, we've got the chief diversity officer in there. And I saw this at a really, really large Fortune 500 company. We started talking about DEI. And the white executive just kind of leaned back in his chair and then motioned towards the chief diversity officer who was a black woman and said, okay, well, this is her purview, right? And why is that happening? Because he felt like he was not supposed to be part of that process, right? Some, something that had broken down in the communication there that made him feel like this was why he had hired someone else because he didn't have the expertise. And so it goes back to that idea that's really important is the lived experience of people coming from different backgrounds is insanely valuable, but also having outside experience and sometimes power that comes with different roles or different backgrounds is also valuable. So it's finding how to meld and get everyone working together. And that's where I think that inclusion piece comes in is how do we all work together and bring what we have in our strengths to the table to accomplish these goals that are aligned with the organization of our, our mission and then are also the right thing to do. My goodness, I so appreciate everything you just say, because I think the danger we get into is I think there's a fear that happens sometimes. Like if you talk about a leader, like you just the example you just used, that I don't really have a voice here. There's a person that and they want to center right from maybe um, a good place. They want to center that person's voice at the table. But it does take a collaborative effort, like an inclusion means all of us. And I think that gets a little lost in the discussion of DEI. The whole point of this exercise of what we want to do is because we know inclusion matters across the board. The white males just hold a positionality that has access to power that is so needed for impactful change to happen. It cannot happen without them. They're so such an integral part of, of creating that impact. And it's also sponsorship and mentoring. Every position I've had in the field, and even when I think about my prior career, has been from a white male mentor or sponsor that saw my skill and abilities and said, I believe in you and I want to help develop you in a positive way. You know, I was really young in corporate America and I, I, that was even another, you know, much more rare positionality that I hold. It was so rare to have. I was, when I was 24, I was the first female in the organization I worked for who was in middle management and a black Latina, you know, from a very urban environment. So I had a leader that saw me, understood I was a 
basic data entry clerk when I first started, but he saw more in me and he was willing to develop and work with me. Um, so that that's like the kind of example that we need. I have worked in numerous treatment facilities where there are diamonds in the rough that folks that are just not paid attention to, but have such great qualities, usually in the behavioral health tech staff, you see people that have leadership qualities already that just need to be developed. You know, are we creating those mentorship and sponsorships very intentionally within these organizations to make sure that we have more representation? And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of work to be done there, but I think we have to be, those that hold the power and privilege have to be really intentional about their effort because it truly could change. Yeah, 100%. Such great examples. I think, I mean, I think about my own position as a straight white male, right? And how I've, you know, worked with different organizations or worked with our team. And I think two things that have been important for me relating to what you're mentioning are one, spending a lot of time listening, right? So finding people that have lived experience coming from different backgrounds and listening before taking action. I think that active listening component is very important to understand. And then also, once you start to realize other people's backgrounds, it's easier for you to see the strengths. You know, so you might have someone that's coming from an urban Latina background that doesn't fit into the cultural norms that you're expecting, right? So for you to understand the strengths and value of different people on your team, you have to take that time to sit down, listen, and, and look at things differently and get a different perspective that might not be the same as yours, but then realize what the strengths in that particular perspective or the skill set that that person brings to the table is. I mean, I even remember the, the first actual, the, high, the first hire we ever had at Circle Social as a W-2 employee was a deaf woman. And it was, it was a different way of working, right? We had to bring in some support systems for that. I had to work with them, obviously, through largely email communication or face-to-face because she could read lips. But, you know, it was really valuable for us because she brought a different perspective and she could interact and she was very excited about the position that she was working in. So it brought a lot of value to the team, but I obviously had to work with her differently than I would have had someone who, you know, had regular hearing. So I, yeah, I love, I love the, the examples you gave there. I appreciate that. For sure. And I think they, those, you know, leaders and we, and in all honesty, if we, you know, if we're transparent, we see that often people that work in our field start off from, you know, a recovery place, right. And, you know, that loyalty that's created with an organization sometimes comes from an alumni who started their recovery at a treatment center. And then, they come in and maybe they're a tech, maybe they come in at another role, but that then is developed and, and the professional development needs are fulfilled for them because the company, the organization is intentional about it. I think we can do the same thing with folks that are marginalized within, or underrepresented within organizations in certain, certain leadership areas. And one example, one concrete example um, with an organization that I've been working with and speaking to that had a predominantly Hispanic staff in their operational side of things. So in the kitchen and housekeeping, and they created a role. They made sure that they elevated a person to the leadership team that was representative of that community. And they changed some of their policies so that communications could go out in both English and Spanish, because they knew that that was a need for their staff. And I think that's a, a really important example of how when you have leadership, you know, from diverse backgrounds with organizations that are meeting needs of employees as well as staff, right? Yeah. Um, and and I, I loved when that person shared with me with that. That was kind of like, you know, really unique than a thing that I've seen within an organization. I think that's exactly, you know, a great example of doing DEI right, right? Because you're understanding what the value is of bringing people in from a specific background that's going to help you serve your team or serve your clients or your patients. Um, even on the board I'm on for Above and Beyond in Chicago, I made a suggestion two years ago now. I said, let's bring in someone that was a patient onto the board. And so just kind of like your example with bringing people in that weren't treatment center owners, you know, I, I got a little bit of pushback at first. They're like, well, you know, that person doesn't have leadership experience. They don't have finance experience. 
I'm like, right, but what do we want from that person? What's their role on their board? Their role on their board is to be the voice of our, our clients, right? To be the voice of the people we're serving and give us perspective from that. And that's what we're looking for. Like we don't need them to make a comment on the financial statements and maybe they'll learn that and they will eventually, but, but that's not why we're pulling someone into the board, right? And that individual has been insanely valuable. I mean, just comes up with suggestions all the time that we would not have thought about because we weren't coming from that background. Yeah, completely. That is definitely kind of the objective. So when you think of kind of moving some of these DEI initiatives forward, you know, do you think that organizations should have a particular role? You know, should they be hiring a, a diversity coordinator or chief diversity officer? You know, what are your thought processes around that hiring or that particular role in the company? Sure, look in the ideal environment, if there's, um, you know, the, the, the resources available, absolutely someone that's dedicated to that role. I also think that role has to be on an executive level, like with, you know, say in it, because I think if it's not a C-suite level and it's just somebody, I think we, you know, historically that that doesn't always work out when it's someone who doesn't have like real power to make change and, and get buy-in from other departments. So I think if you do bring in someone, it needs to be on the leadership level. If there's an affordability issue to that, then, I mean, there's a bevy of consultants. There are more and more coming up that are really behavioral health specific. You know, I made it a fundamental decision that I wanted to focus on behavioral health care because I understood in addiction treatment, particularly because I've understood the pain points of our organizations. I've been in every part. So I have a real, it's it's a real differentiator for me in terms of a lot of other diversity consultants. They're, they're more and more because there's a need and people are realizing it. So, you know, again, it's not if, but when, you know, organizations are going to have to do it, going to have to get the buy-in at some point. Do you want to be ahead of the curve or behind the curve? Yeah. So. yeah. Well, I, I think, yeah, I think you're right. Bringing someone in at a leadership level is probably pretty critical for your first hire if you're going to make a hire in it or assigning, you know, someone in leadership committee to head up the DEI initiatives because otherwise you're right. They're not going to have enough influence within the organization. And I think the other thing that's always important to remember is again, you have to be intentional in the hiring processes. So just like you talked about with the Latina woman getting the position in the company, like I mentioned, like bringing a patient onto the board, you know, there's very specific reasons that that person makes sense, but these roles are not well-defined. And a lot of the times people make the mistake of just hiring someone because they have lived experience, you know, saying, hey, okay, you're a black woman or you're a gay man, you're gonna be our chief diversity officer. And I think that kind of tokenism is not helpful for anyone because then the, the team doesn't trust it. They're like, oh, well, that person was just hired because they come from a specific background. But it's also a failure from the leadership and the organization level because they're not putting KPIs in place. They're not putting objectives in place. It's not aligned with the mission. And, and because this is newer, I think it's important to hire people like you or send people through you know, training programs like the diversity executive certification Definitely. so that they can learn these things you know, and, and do the job well from the get-go. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that is always an option. Like even if, you know, you don't have the affordability to hire a consultant, well, start investing in training your own staff. And, you know, you also have to think about not overtaxing staff that have wearing multiple hats, but we know smaller organizations that's usually the way, you know, operations <laughs> rock and roll. <laughs> um, but when you can make the, when you have the resources, definitely, you know, make, make that investment. This is not, and here's what I definitely not a proponent of, the one and done workshops. The <laughs> We're going to have, you know, like, you know, I know we talked about this before of, you know, bias training, uh, you know, the one-off workshops does not get you where you need to be. This has to really be integrated into your overall organizational strategy. I, my dream is that one day DEI is not even like in our vernacular and it is just part of the organizational structure. Like it is just the culture of an organization. This is how we are inclusive. And so what does inclusive mean in every single performance, you know, line item of our company? What, is, what does that mean? That's my dream that hopefully one day we'll get to. Yeah, 100% agree. I think that a lot of organizations make this mistake where they come in, they just do these one-off trainings. You know, it just doesn't drive anything. You have to have alignment across the organization. You have to have KPIs and accountability. And so it's okay to bring in someone from a consulting level, right? And just kick those things off. That's absolutely 100% helpful. 
but how are you working with that consultant or how are you thinking about before you bring them in about how to make that work sustainable? And then again, making sure it's integrated into the mission. There's a clear ROI to the initiatives that you're making so that there is internalized incentive to keep moving those forward. Because it's, if it's just done for feel good reasons, you're going to, you're going to see it. I've seen it happen a hundred times, right? Where it just falls apart. People lose track of it. Other priorities come into play. You know, I often say to executives, you can only really have three priorities at any one given time. And so, yeah. you know, if DEI is not somehow critical to the success of your efforts, then it's just, it's going to get relegated to the sidelines. And that's, it's just the way it, we always operate. It doesn't matter if it's DEI or any initiative, it's the fourth or fifth thing on our agenda, it's going to sit on the sidelines. And so we really have to be intentional and have to understand what the exact return is that we're getting on these initiatives and the investments. So really, really appreciate that point. Do you want to speak to just, I, I always bring it up because it's such a, contentious topic, but just unconscious bias training in general. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah. I mean, I just, my feelings around it is it's a training bias is a continuum. It's a lifetime journey. We are all going to carry some type of bias at different points in time. I think the Harvard implicit bias, um, tests that you can go online and get has iterated over the years. There are now multiple representation available so you can see where your biases are. But that is, that's a lifetime commitment. That is, again, not this one and done deal. So not a big fan of it. I know I read something that you had shared with me about language and how we use it. So I think language also matters. Like, what does it mean to not be biased? You know, like, really, what does that mean? And, you know, get down to the core of it. I think all of us, all of humanity, all we want to do is feel like we belong places and we're, we're included. So, you know how we language our stuff within this work is also something I'm, I'm really particular about language matters. So, you know, the fuzzy or the trendy term is not the way to go. It's what are we really trying to accomplish with like a bias training and what's the long term that we want to accomplish. Yeah, I agree. If you're going to bring in that kind of training, I think it's, it's again, going back, what, what are the mission objectives for the organization? How does everyone understand that, this training is going to help them do their jobs better or make their lives easier or help accomplish the mission of the organization, you know, and so I'll link, I'll link the Harvard implicit bias test in, in the show notes as well, as well as that article that you mentioned, because it, you know, people don't realize that a lot of bias is just unconscious, right? Your data is taking all the information in the environment and it creates these unconscious patterns based on certain levels of recognition. And so we tend to have biases, even if we don't realize it, you know, if we're, um, you know, if we're seeing on the TV all the time, you have a bunch of youth and every time you see a youth on the TV, they're stealing a car or they're getting in trouble or they're getting drunk and causing problems, then unconsciously you start to associate teenagers with problems. And so even if you don't consciously think that way, your brain's made that pattern. And so you're going to react in a certain way when you see a teenager that's going to be more fearful or more cautious than if you saw um, an adult, right, or a child. And so just realizing that it's part of us all, it's done unconsciously. And so there are things that we can do to actively mitigate that. I mean, that's why we have our conscious brain, right? So we can kind of break down false assumptions that maybe we've come up with unconsciously. Yeah, and what we've learned you know, from our own lived experiences and where we grew up and what region of the country, what was our family dynamic like? Those are all the things that inform our biases, but biases can easily be broken and changed. We just have to have a willingness to learn. Yeah, yeah, that willingness to learn, I think is critical, right? I'll make one last comment, just how difficult this is. So some organizations, what they'll do is they'll like, they'll remove names from resumes, right? So that a name doesn't potentially bias them towards a particular candidate, which is a really good recruitment tactic. You know, it's pretty valuable to do. We do that internally here at Circle Social, but they did a, an interesting study in California. I can't remember how long ago it was, but you know, they found that they actually kept the names on there for this particular study. And they found that there was a bias towards um, minority groups or disadvantaged groups in the hiring process and that people that weren't as good of a fit for the company based on skills or experience or whatever were getting hired just because of the background they were coming in because people were trying to, they were overcompensating for their bias. They had been through bias training. They knew that they yeah. were probably biased. And so they were overcompensating yeah. and making negative hiring decisions in the opposite direction. <laughs> so it's a very yeah. difficult issue. <laughs> 
complicated. So you can't, you know, and I think that's overall like our culture right now. We swim, swing from, we overcorrect. We go from one pendulum to the next side of the pendulum, you know, and we're overcorrecting in some areas. So, you know, just being cautious and go slowly. That's the other thing is doesn't need to be, there's urgency, but there needs to be a strategy an intention and take your time with it, especially with this topic. Yeah, hundred percent. So as we wrap up here, any any final thoughts, anything we didn't cover that you want to talk about? You know, I think that's, you know, like if there's any final message, it is really about addressing the urgency. It's really about the interpersonal piece of this. All of this work at the end of the day is where do you sit in your positionality? Where do you sit in your worldviews and your values? And how does that then inform the organization, your staff? and your clients. So I think a lot of the work, just as much as it's organizational, it's interpersonal. So I suggest to leaders all the time, if you're struggling with this, there's folks that coach individually on DEIB. Um, Get some coaching around it. If you're still uncomfortable going into a setting as a leadership member and putting out initiatives, if you're just not comfortable and clear with it, do your own work, right? Do your own work around it. Yeah, great advice. I mean, obviously, as a consultant myself on the consulting side of Circle Social, I'm biased, but I do highly recommend, you know, reaching out to someone like you to really begin this work or, or expand upon it. So, if someone wanted to hire you, or if they just wanted to get in touch and talk to you, what would be the best way to do that? Yeah, the best way to reach me is probably um, through my email. It's Zina Z I N A at Z like zebra and like Nancy, Z like David consulting.com. I'm always open to a conversation and you can reach me via phone at 305-771-4240. All right. Well, Zina, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. I mean, this is such an important topic. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. For all the listeners out there, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Nick. Take good care.